Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, a staple of Louisiana kitchens for nearly 40 years. Maker of batters, coatings, boils, tartar sauce, cocktail sauce, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. From our studios in the Southern Food and Beverage Museum in New Orleans, this is Louisiana Eats. I'm Poppy Tooker. What's your food identity? And where did you get that idea in the first place? On this week's episode, we set out to examine those questions and discover some pretty compelling answers. We begin with journalist and food historian Lolas Eric Eli, who discusses his own journey to uncover the true origins of New Orleans Creole food, along with the often overlooked African contributions. Then, author Anya von Bremsen explores the fascinating journey some foods have taken before becoming recognized as a national dish that represents a nation. And finally, we meet playwright and stage director Eva Dumbia. Her performance piece, Autophagy, explores food history and its connections to human exploitation. We're digging deep to learn the truth about food origins and evolution on this week's Louisiana Eats. Lowless Eric Eli has spent much of his life deeply immersed in New Orleans culture. He grew up as the son of a prominent civil rights attorney who played a pivotal role in the city's integration. He served as road manager for Wynton Marsalis. And he spent nearly a decade and a half as a reporter and columnist for the local Times-Picayune newspaper. Lolas is also the author of multiple food-themed books, including Treme, Stories and Recipes from the Heart of New Orleans. And as a filmmaker, he wrote and co-produced the PBS documentary Faubourg Treme, The Untold Story of Black New Orleans. Lolas and I have been friends now for more than 25 years. Over that time, we've had many conversations comparing notes about food and our beloved New Orleans home. I invited him back into the Louisiana Eats studio to discuss a topic that's been the subject of a great deal of discussion these days, the true origins of French Creole food and its many connections to Africa. You know, often we think that everything in New Orleans can be attributed to the French. Everything different about New Orleans compared to the rest of the United States can be attributed to the French. And then you begin to do a little scholarship, even sort of minor digging, you realize, well, the Spanish were here a long time, and therefore they had a great influence. And the Haitians who came here during the Haitian Revolution, basically the early part of the 1800s, they were roughly uh, one-third free, one-third free people of color, one-third enslaved, 
they were also the most recent influence of Francophone people coming to the city. We begin to realize that it's far more complicated to talk about our cultural roots. But more specifically, when I began looking at the African connections, I remember um, it really had a couple of different beginnings. The first one was when I went to Africa the first time. And fortunately for me, I went to Senegal and to Gambia, which are two countries that are in many ways identical and some ways not. And I'm sitting there saying, well, you know, man, I'm a black American in the time when we were becoming interested in Africa. I got to go to Africa. But Lord, I hope the food is good. And of course, fortunately for me, I land in rice country because I'm not a big fan of fufu, which you get further down the coast in West Africa. And a lot of that food tasted to me similar to the food that I grew up on. A whole lot of rice and beans and fish. Um, then, you know, when Creole Feast came out, Rudy Lombard's cookbook in 1978, I was 14, 15 years old. And so I was not thinking about it intellectually then. I started cooking a lot of the recipes and I cared about the food. But he raises a question in that book that he doesn't really answer, which is, what is the definition of Creole food? Because all of these books, as he said, have these definitions, and they only agree on one thing, that black people were only the, as he put it, the black hands in the pot, but were none of the intellectual muscle behind the development of Creole cuisine. Well, the first real symposium that the Southern Foodways Alliance had, it was about Creolization, and they invited Uncle Rudy to speak. And he said, look, I'm really not doing food anymore, but I got a young protege, Lola Zeli. Why don't you call him? And at that point, I began uh, to write an essay um, that I titled, As to Escoffier's Silence in the Matter of Gumbo. Oh, I want to read that. <laughs> I got to send it to you. Um, because, you know, the point was, if this is all French food, and Escoffier is arguably the early, uh, early expert on French food. Why does he not mention this? And what kept coming up over and over again was the notion that, well, gumbo is just an attempt to make bouillabaisse in the absence of the French ingredients. I'm like, you can make bouillabaisse here. There are a lot of basic things about bouillabaisse. We don't have any shortage of fin fish here. We don't have any shortage of bread. The French brought French bread. All those other components are there, but gumbo is not attempting to do that. But there's no okra in France. So an okra-based dish, as gumbo was in its beginning, as its name tells us, because kigumbo is the word for okra in uh, many of the, the Bantu languages of West Africa, obviously this has other roots. Then I thought about other things. For example, France is not a real rice-growing region. People don't realize that in addition to the Asian rices that we're all familiar with, there was and is an indigenous African rice variety. So if you have something like chebujin, which is the Senegalese rice and fish dish, you can see how easy it is to get from there to jambalaya. Mm -hmm. I don't know how, you, now maybe you can get from, from paella to jambalaya, but I'm, I don't see that I've as French. I've never bought that. I've never bought that paella connection personally. The cooking techniques are totally different. And then there's jollof. Like, I just, I didn't know jollof. It's like Occam's razor. You go to the simplest solution as opposed to trying to explain how all of a sudden the French and the Spanish are doing these foods that seem to have more connections to West Africa. And what I found, my theory is that someone who was a good cook back in the 1930s, 40s, and 50s decides to write a cookbook. And they get their friend who's a good writer and say, well, write me something as an introduction. And mind you, now almost any cookbook you buy is going to have 
um, some essays in it, not just the recipes. But at that point, the essays were really throwaway. Now, the fact that the essays were innocent of scholarship and depth does not mean that they did not reveal much about the thinking. I always go back to Dorothy Dix, who, among other things, talked about the hotbreds of New England as being an influence on Creole cuisine. And, and for people who may not know who Dorothy Dix is. Well, she's a columnist in, in New Orleans in, I think, the 1920s. Yeah. But the point is that they went to every possible connection to avoid the African connection. Similarly, Lafcadio Hearn, who in many ways is a great scholar of, of, uh, of Creole culture and of Japanese culture later, goes out of his way to say Creole does not mean a mixing of African and European. Creole is pure white people born in the new world of French and Spanish stock. Shame on you, Lafcadio. The fact that he had to go through so much, you know, I think he doth protest too much. And so much of this is all of a piece of the way in which American culture has sought to denigrate African culture and distance itself from African culture. And of course, even black Americans fall into that as well, particularly if you look at religion. The notion is that, well, thank God we came here and got civilized with Christianity. It's like (laughs) a whole lot of us, um, you know, we had religions before we got here. But what I found in the food is that food is so important in New Orleans. And New Orleans food is so important on the national and on the world stage that to reevaluate the origins, plural, of Creole cuisine is to reevaluate the position of Africans in world food culture. And I need to be very clear. I am not trying to say that the French and the Spanish and all of those quote-unquote Spanish people from the Spanish colonies of the New World were not important. I don't mean to say that. I'm saying let's attempt to get at a kind of truth, a non-racist truth, about what these other contributions were. And I remember um, in in, uh, Justin Wilson's book, he talks about Madame Lancois, who was the first chef um, of the governor of Louisiana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The colonial women went to her and said, Madame Langlois, there, uh, there's nothing to cook here. Now, what he says is that she was the first great chef. He then says that she taught them things that she had been taught by the Indians. Yeah. It's either <laughs> one or the other. Right. Those are the kinds of acrobatics necessary to insert the racism that is at the heart of these earlier analyses. Well, you know, one of the things that simply breaks my heart when we go way, way back, you know, there, there is so little that we have been taught. Um, you know, it's just a lot of uncovering now. And this concept that somehow an African person doesn't have the same ability to taste that makes me insane. Um, the other thing that bothers me in a similar vein is this notion that soul food, quote unquote soul food, was developed because people were only eating the cheapest parts of the of it. I'm like, well, first of all, my relatives in Maringouin, Louisiana, own their own farm. It was relatively easy to own pigs because they reproduce very quickly. So you don't have to wait for somebody to give you the undesirable parts of the pig. You got your own. So my thesis is, of course, that Africans created African-American cuisine by attempting to recreate the flavors of the homeland in the New World. 
and that you cannot say that it's simply because of the the quality of the provisions. But what happens also, though, is that we end up with these folklores that get repeated and never examined. The other notion is that Africans brought okra seeds in their hair. Oh, that one. And it's like, wait a minute, so you think that some people who are captured, probably in a violent war, were saying, well, before you kill me or take me away to be eaten or whatever you're going to do, I need to put some okra seeds in my hair? Makes no sense. Okra was cheap fodder for slaves. That was the slave in trappers, the slave traders. That's who brought the okra. Well, put it another way, though, you had to feed people something that they wanted to eat. Because although there are stories of slaves being force-fed, as a general proposition, you wanted to find some compromise. Okay, this is what you want to eat, etc. But the other thing you got to realize, though, and this is where I think the French deserve credit and where the British and the British colonies in the Americas fall short. The French put a priority on good food and good living. And so when these West Africans were making their okra stews, the French looked at that with a non-prejudiced eye and said, it tastes good. Now, there's all kinds of other ways in which the French were certainly not good masters of Louisiana. But in terms of that, there was a kind of democracy at the plate and in the pot that you didn't find in other places. And then if you look back to France at the time that we're talking about, there wasn't slavery. They were not slave keepers, and they did not really believe in that, as far as I can tell, after the French Revolution and, you know, they have enlightenment. But then, sadly, like the father of enlightenment, Thomas Jefferson, like we don't even have to necessarily touch him. But he's one of the folks It's kind of making me crazy these days because— you know, he's always been credited with bringing French cuisine to the United States when actually he just made sure that his slaves got trained. Exactly. But also, what about all those Haitians, people whom Thomas Jefferson wished had remained in chains? What about all of those people who came to New Orleans in the, uh, in the late 1700s, early 1800s? Did they not have an influence? What bothers me when we talk about Louisiana history, we don't mention Haiti. Because we want to pretend that because Haiti is poor now and has its various problems, that it is not crucial and fundamental and foundational to who we are. There's a scholar um, whose niece I went to school with, I think his name was Peter Reinecke, his last name was Reinecke, who said that Louisiana Creole, the language, is very much related to Haitian Creole. Um, I think our assumptions about Africans as having so little to contribute means that we don't even try to examine what it is they did contribute. Or put another way, we assume that the power dynamics are such that the less powerful do not exert influence or indeed power on the quote-unquote more powerful. And what I would argue, particularly in New Orleans, as Rudy Lombard argued in Creole Feast, all the things that are distinctive about New Orleans have significant African influence. If we talk about the food, the music, the architecture, the dance, the parades and the pageantry, all of those things are very clearly tied to the African presence here. And I don't want to say that the European presence is not important. I just want to say if the European presence is that important, why are you unwilling to examine the other influence and give them their appropriate credit? 
Oh, Lois, can you just imagine how your Uncle Rudy must be smiling at us just having gotten to the point where we can have this conversation? Well, so I find, I, I feel his influence perhaps even more at this late date. Um, maybe it's because in his absence, I and we feel a greater responsibility or maybe because we understand what he was trying to get to in a way that we wouldn't have 10, 20, 30 years ago. Um, and, you know, also Rudy was, was very interested in the politics of all of this. And after Creole Feast did not continue writing about food. But what I find is that the more you go into the scholarship of food, the more you find that the questions he raised can be answered in ways implicit in his questions that would certainly please him. <laughs> what a great guy. Lois, thanks so much. Something tells me that this conversation we're having will go on as long as we have breath. Poppy, I appreciate it because your forum allow some of the most important conversations about Louisiana food that have ever been had. I'm honored to be a part of it, and I thank you for your work in this regard. Thank you, Lois. That was food historian and filmmaker Lois Eric Eli, author of Treme, Stories and Recipes from the Heart of New Orleans. Coming up next, we speak with author Anya von Bremsen to learn about the sometimes circuitous route foods take in order to become a country's national dish. Louisiana Eats returns after the break. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with major support from Crystal Hot Sauce, now celebrating 100 years of hot sauce deliciousness. Always made with just three simple ingredients, aged red cayenne peppers, distilled white vinegar, and salt nothing artificial. Crystal hot sauce. Step out of the heat and into the flavor. From Rouse's Markets, synonymous with seafood straight from Louisiana's waterways, Rouse's Markets tastes like home. And from Camellia Brand, Beans Done Right, a New Orleans tradition since 1923. Camellia is celebrating their centennial with innovations for today's lifestyle. Beans for two. 
If a bag of beans is too big for your family, Camellia's New Orleans-style red beans for two and Cajun-style white beans for two has everything needed for dinner in today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. Russian-born Anya von Bremsen is a multiple James Beard award-winning food writer who introduced readers to food and life in the former Soviet Union with her memoir, Mastering the Art of Soviet Cooking. She's also the author of six cookbooks, and her latest tome is a deep dive into what it takes for a food to become recognized as a country's national dish. In the aptly named book, National Dish, Anya explains how history, culture, colonialism, race, and even politics can play a part in this complex story. Oh, Anya, I am so honored to have you here on Louisiana Eats because you are one of the greatest food writers of our time. Let me just ask you, Right off the bat, the name of your book, National Dish. What is a national dish, Anya? What qualifies a food as a national dish? It's a complicated subject and such a fascinating one. To start with, we didn't have nations and national cuisines as we know them today before pretty much the French Revolution established the idea of a nation. Because you had kingdoms, you had monarchies, People's identities and allegiances were completely different. So to start with, it's a fairly new subject. So what makes pizza Italy's national dish when there was no Italy until the unification of 1860s? Uh, why is ramen a Chinese dish, the national dish of Japan? Why is French cuisine so overbearing? And why has it been dominant for so long? I mean, all these questions and so many more are what drove me to write this book. And more importantly, how does the idea of a national dish and national cuisine fare in the age of globalization? Things really start to heat up in your book when your next destination is Naples. Could you demystify for us the pizza effect? Wow, there's so much to say about pizza. First of all, that is completely associated with Naples. Some dishes are disputed. Who does hummus belong to? We don't know. So many countries claim it. Pizza is Naples. The technique of making it is very particular to Naples. This is where the dough, a flatbread, first meets the tomato around the 1760s. And even the oven, the pizza oven, they just discovered in Pompeii, the archeological site, very similar ovens. So pizza is a food of Naples. It's a food of the Neapolitan poor people. It's not just, you know, it, and it's a scorned and really dissed by Northern Italians. For instance, Pinocchio's creator, Carlo Collodi, he compares it to complicated filth. I mean, he's so disparaging about it because Naples in 19th century, the most overcrowded city in the world. Uh, 10 times the density of Victorian London, which is already overcrowded. So poor people are eating pizza. It costs only one soldo, which is kind of a penny. Um, and it's this by Northern Italian. So how does pizza become famous? 
Well, think about it. The unification of Italy produces a lot of chaos, poverty, high taxation, and you have one of the largest recorded out-migrations in the history of humanity as the Italians, most of them from the South, many of them from Naples, go with the Americas, the North America and South America. There they start opening pizza places. And pizza goes from a Neapolitan peculiarity to something that unites the Italians abroad. Anya, I'm telling you, your trip to Tokyo blew me away. You go in search of ramen, which is now a $44 billion worldwide industry. And what an incredible story you come up with there. Tell us what happened in 1958 with Momofuku Ando. Well, so to start with a little bit ramen, like pizza, uh, it's a scorned dish. It's a dish of the poor. It's a cheap starch. It originates in the Chinatowns of Japanese treaty ports like Yokohama City and Nagasaki. Uh, and it sort of goes mainstream before the two world wars, but it becomes huge in Japan after World War II because it's fueling the post-war reconstruction of the country. All these workers, all these people, you know, this busy activity, they're all eating ramen because it's a cheap starch, it's filling, uh, so then it becomes national dish. But we're still talking about hand-pulled noodles. So in 1950s, Momofuku Ando invents instant ramen. And it is recognized by the Japanese as their most important invention. What they're most proud of in poll after poll is the instant ramen. And it completely changes the Japanese diet. Because here you have something that you could just add water to. Um, and again, you have this meal. So it becomes the food of American prisons. It becomes this like multi-billion dollar industry. But here's a twist. Momofuku Ando is a Chinese guy who was born in Taiwan and who's nationalized. So again, Japan's national dish is actually Chinese and invented by a Chinese person. And with this really sort of unholy globalization that has been going on, apparently, you know, that we all know that the Japanese historically have had rice, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's their number one staff of life. And yet... In Tokyo, they are often choosing the croissant over the traditional Gohan breakfast of rice. And white bread is really taken over. Yeah, wheat, you know, once they planted that seed in people's minds and stomachs, uh, it really took off. And it's the same. I observed the same situation in Mexico because I have a chapter on Oaxaca which is Mexico's most fascinating and most multicultural state with 16 different uh, indigenous groups living there, all speaking unique languages. And there I investigate the corn, the maize tortilla, which is an absolute important symbol of Mexico's national identity. But there you have its own wheat situation. When the Spanish colonists arrive, they bring them with them wheat because bread is part of Catholicism, is part of the Holy Communion. They want to convert the indigenous population. They want to enslave them by planting wheat and making them work on the wheat plantations. Wheat becomes this huge part of the colonial enterprise for religious purposes, for practical purposes. In the 20th century, the Mexicans are eating more bread than they do maize. 
believe it or not, because there's such propaganda, such promotion, even after the revolution of 1920, uh, which was all about indigenous people and indigenous peasants, still bread is really huge. And only recently, believe it or not, in the 90s with the NAFTA, which floods Mexico with GMO, contaminated corn, that a real grassroots movement springs up to save the tortilla, to elevate corn into something of a national symbol, um, and to really kind of stir consumer patriotism and pride. So corn, you know, as uh, masa, you know, tortillas, tamale, as a national symbol is something fairly recent, believe it or not, even though it's counterintuitive. You think, oh, yes, corn always Mexico is such an important part of uh, pre-Hispanic and indigenous religious rituals. It's so important. No, but it really had to fight its way to survive and to triumph. So this is, you know, starting with your question, what is a national dish? This, this all the stuff, history, culture, colonialism, race, all these things go into the creation of national dishes. And once you start unpacking it, that is just so incredibly fascinating. I was fascinated by the cooking technique that you unveiled that you described as the cornerstone of Ottoman dishes. So the Ottoman Empire is long gone, but this technique of sauteing masses of onions in lots and lots of fats to make this almost like a confit what what is i'm not going to try to pronounce it you do what is that called and describe for me how it functions as that cornerstone of ottoman cuisine so the ottoman palace uh in turkey is really where a lot of dishes are invented a lot of culinary innovation um this is and from there it's exported to the rest of the empire and one of the great dishes yes it's called zeytin yale and uh Zeytinyal means olive oil, and it involves braising a vegetable, uh, whether it's artichokes in spring or fava beans or okra in summer or eggplant in the fall, with loads and loads of olive oil and loads and loads of onions and a secret pinch of sugar and a little bit of water. And the water evaporates, and at the end, you are left with this dish eaten cold or at room temperature, which is just so luscious. Because imagine you're braising, you know, we like to cook our vegetables al dente, but a lot of the cultures don't. So you have the slowly braised vegetables, sweet from the onions with some pinches of spices. Um, this is what the Turks, uh, especially in Istanbul, eat most of the time. Sometimes, Anya, your writing to me was like poetry. Food is about nostalgia. Food is about saying, oh, you know, there was a time when we all lived together in peace and shared this or that dish. And now how sad it is that, that we're being divided. So the chapter is very much about that kind of cultural longing. And my last chapter, which is the most personal and the most poignant to me, is about borscht. It's a Ukrainian beet soup, which the Russians always ate. I ate it as a kid growing up in Moscow. And it is our dish, right? We don't even think we are Russian, Ukrainian, Jewish. It is something that we eat. It was part of my childhood in Russia, in Moscow. I invite Ukrainian friends who I fear don't even want to speak to me because I'm a Russian-speaking person. I invite them over for borscht, and we talk about our changed identities and about the state of the world. And this is not a happy place 
in the world right now, and we're all really concerned from it. But this is this is also part of what food represents, and we can't uh, we can't pretend that uh, it's always something happy. This is a dish that, in essence, is a victory for the Ukraine because of the designation of UNESCO's intangible cultural heritage, and that that young activist chef in Kyiv. He really did score one for the Ukrainians, didn't he? Evgen Klopatenko, yes, he and other activists really trying to prove, you know, with a lot of historical documents in the middle of this war where people have other things to worry about. But they go at it and they get the UNESCO designation. And it's more than just a foodie victory because obviously borscht is something that unites all Ukrainians right now, it's what the soldiers eat when they come home from the battle. Um, it's like the first symbol of domestic life, which is being so endangered right now. Um, and it was a huge victory for Ukraine. And also it became the solidarity hashtag. Um, this activist in London, Olya Hercules and her friends, um, they really turned it into the symbol of resistance. And again, this shows us how food can function as this, you know, huge solidarity symbol. And really, food is the thing that defines our humanity in so many ways. And so, to me, your book, National Dish, is such a timely tome. It's really a great book. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I really enjoyed our conversation. That was food writer Anya von Bremsen, author of National Dish. What is the national dish of the United States? Stay tuned, and we'll explore that question when we come right back. Poppy Tooker, and you're listening to Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Louisiana Eats is brought to you with support from Louisiana Fish Fry, now doing for chicken what they've always done for fish. Fried chicken tenders, wings, sandwiches, and more. Louisiana Fish Fry has you covered with a mix specially for chicken. Louisiana Fish Fry, because life needs Louisiana flavor. And from Visit the North Shore, discover world-class culinary flavors on the North Shore this fall. Experience the bounty of the bayou and the rich culture from award-winning chefs, soulful mom-and-pop restaurants, extraordinary bakers, and creative mixologists. To learn more, request the Explore the North Shore Visitor Guide for inspirational stories, custom itineraries, and event information at visitthenorthshore.com. St. Tammany Parish, Louisiana's easy escape, just 40 minutes from New Orleans French Quarter. 
This week's culinary quiz question, brought to you with support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen. What is the national dish of the United States? Sadly, it's probably the hamburger. But with 50 states in our union, each one very different from the next, it turns out each state has its own dish in America. And of course, here in Louisiana, it's gumbo. I love that the word gumbo is often used to describe who Louisiana folks are because we're just a great, delicious melting pot. So many cultures contributed to that pot. There's the French roux, the African okra, the filet powder of our indigenous peoples. So much history, so much deliciousness. Me? I'll take a big bowl of gumbo over a hamburger any day. I'm Poppy Tooker, and we can all agree, gumbo makes for the best Louisiana Eats. My name is Eva Dumbia. I'm a stage director and writer. There's a reason dinner and a show is such a classic pairing. Whether on stage or on your plate, a great work of art has the power to inspire us and even transform our perceptions of the world. But what about when dinner is a show? In March 2023, an immersive theater experience in New Orleans' Ashe Cultural Arts Center combined food and live performance in a genre-bending event. Entitled Autophagy, which means self-eaters in French, the work explored food history, its colonial legacies, and human cost. A cast of actors from France and New Orleans performed alongside an Ivorian dancer and French musician. All the while, a Cameroonian French chef prepared a traditional Senegalese stew live on stage, which was then shared with the audience at the end. Louisiana Eats had the opportunity to meet author and cast member Ava Dumbia, while she was in town for the performance. English is not Ava's native language, so a translator joined us in the studio to assist in our conversation. Ava, this is such a fascinating work that is unlike anything I have ever seen or heard of before. Can you explain to me the inspiration for self-eaters and how it came to be. Um, en fait, je me suis aperçu que dans plusieurs spectacles auparavant. So, in several of my shows that I had created before, I noticed a pattern of characters eating on stage. Le décor était un restaurant et des femmes. 
And for example, there was one show in particular where the set was a, actually a restaurant and black French women uh, would eat on stage as part of the show and they always, uh, as part of the story, would always meet up at the same restaurant and they actually invited nine members of the audience to come eat on stage with them. But then in addition to that, there's also I've always been interested in my work in questions of slavery and colonization. And I learned a few years back that this traditional dish in Senegal, which is called tiboujen, actually is not a dish that has existed for very long because rice didn't natively grow in Africa. Um, so I tried to see from that uh, discovery which other dishes from around the world were not originally from there that we really associate with places. For example, we eat so many tomatoes and potatoes in Europe, but those crops are not originally from Europe. D'un autre côté, enfin, euh, il s'avère que mon père, euh, qui est un immigré, Another ingredient, if you will, uh, to uh, add to this story is that my father, uh, who was an immigrant from Africa to France, opened his own restaurant there, and it was one of the first African restaurants in France. And there he served mafé, which is uh, from West Africa. It's uh, Ivorian, it's from Mali as well. And that has a crucial ingredient, which is the peanut. And the peanut, uh, yet again, is not originally from West Africa. It's from the Americas. The Aztecs grew it originally. So all of this research um, led me to think about how each time we consume something, each time we eat a dish, we're actually participating in a long, long story and history of domination and colonization. I was fascinated by that take on food and learned so much with the various ingredients that you feature and talk about in the play. And I think many people would be as surprised as myself to hear the backstory on the ingredients that inspired you. Alors, par exemple, la banane, qui est associée à l'Afrique. For example, there's the banana, which is associated with Africa. And in France, it's actually quite a racist symbol. And that's because we say that Africans eat bananas. We also say monkeys eat bananas. And actually, the banana does not natively grow in Africa. Uh, it was imported there from India. And so I started to wonder, why do we associate Africans with bananas? Les voyages font que maintenant la banane, euh, la banane pousse en Afrique. So the banana, which this is actually a story that we tell in our show, it does grow in Africa now, and uh, it came with the colonizers, it came with the travelers who brought it there, and that arrived in Africa around year 500. Other fruits, other foods that we don't talk about in the show are mangoes or pineapple, for example. All those fruits that nowadays we call exotic fruits, they grow in Africa now, but they originally were not natively from there. 
which, of course, then naturally raises the question, what did Africans eat before they were colonized? Um, and so that led me to a lot of uh, agricultural research. And it turns out that uh, the foods that traditional African cultures grew and ate were almost entirely replaced by foods that were brought in by their colonizers, by the cultures that uh, colonized them. So that includes growing peanuts um, in Africa, uh, palm trees as well, for example. And from both of those, uh, they could extract oil. And Europe was desperately in need of oil. So they used this colonized continent in order to create oil. In order to feed the Africans who were growing these uh, staple crops, uh, they were importing other crops and other foods from Asia, like rice, for example. And uh, there was actually an African rice that uh, was rather rare, but did grow there natively. Um, but that uh, completely got wiped out by the import of Asian rice. I would like you to explain what you mean by self-eaters and how you use your play to illustrate what I believe is hidden racism inherent in almost everything around African food, as you have explained? Um, self-eater, autophagie, c'est le fait de se manger soi-même. So, autophagie, uh, self-eaters, it's this, this idea of eating oneself. And uh, what I'm teasing out with that is if we consider other people to be uh, our brothers, our sisters, if we consider everyone to be valued equally, then other people are me. So when I eat, I'm complicit in this process of their exploitation. I am even an actor in this process of their exploitation. In the play, there is a dish that you use to illustrate this concept that is actually prepared on stage during the run of the play. What I'm trying to do with the show is put our audience members in an ambivalent position. While they're sitting there, they're hungry. They smell the food being prepared on stage. Its delicious odors are invading their nostrils. At the same time, they're hearing how it's made. They're hearing the story of its ingredients, which makes them rather uncomfortable during the show. And so I kind of think of it as a form of consciousness raising for our audience members. This is not an unfamiliar feeling. This is a known feeling. When we're eating, there's always pleasure associated with death, right? But at the same time, by embracing this feeling, we can look at it more honestly through the show. It permet to déplier, to rendre cette sensation consciente. How have the audiences responded? In comparison with previous projects that I've worked on and previous shows that I've created, this show provokes something more from the audience than just a typical uh, feeling of being pleased by what they saw, for example. Um, it's kind of like a religious communion experience, I would say. At the end, with the meal, we all have the opportunity to have this moment of coming together, of, of communing together. So when people come up at the end and they say, thank you, I wonder, is it because we're giving them food? 
It seems like it's uh, more from the emotion of having had an experience that transported them somewhere else. Um, this, is, uh, this is total art. This is immersive art. De l'art total. Well, congratulations on the amazing work that you have done. And thank you so much for bringing it to New Orleans. Thank you. That was theater artist Eva Dumbia speaking with us about her play Autophagy, or Self-Eaters, which was performed in New Orleans in March 2023. You'll find more information about Ava and her theater company on our website, poppytooker.com. That's it for this week's edition of Louisiana Eats, edible content for Louisiana food lovers. Catch up on previous editions of Louisiana Eats on poppytooker.com, where over a decade of Louisiana Eats is available for pod and webcasting, along with recipes and cooking class videos, too. And don't forget to rate us on your preferred podcast platform. Louisiana Eats is made possible with major support from Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen, Louisiana Fish Fry, Crystal Hot Sauce, Rouse's Markets, Visit the North Shore, and Camellia Beans, celebrating their centennial with an innovative new product, Beans for Two. Camellia's new Red Beans for Two and White Beans for Two include everything needed to cook two authentically seasoned bowls of beans, scaled for today's smaller households. Learn more at CamelliaBrand.com. And from D'Agostino Pasta, celebrating our culture with fleur-de-lis, crawfish, and alligator-shaped pastas. All handcrafted in Louisiana, just as it's been done in Sicily for centuries. Visit D'AgostinoPasta.com to learn more. Original theme music composed by David Pomerlo and performed by Johnny Sketch and the Dirty Notes. Big thanks to senior producer Joe Schreiner, producers Blake Longlinay and Steve Himmelfarb, with writing contributions from Becky Retz, and to our business manager and social media maven, Maddie Mulladew. Catch up with us anytime on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, too. Louisiana Eats is a production of Poppy Tooker Broadcasting. <laughs>